headache, dizziness, nausea, trouble sleeping, trouble concentrating, no clear cause. Sound familiar? Chances are good it could be electromagnetic sensitivity, or EMS, caused by the increasing amount of wireless or radio frequency radiation in our environment. Every day, more and more people are discovering that their seemingly unrelated symptoms are the same ones commonly reported by people who find that those symptoms disappear when the source of wireless radiation is removed. Whether we admit it or not, we're all taking part in a giant worldwide experiment. A lot of people are getting sick, and some people are trying to do something about it. This is how we find out whether the health of a powerful industry is more important than the health of citizens. And this is Green Street. Hello again and welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts in health, science and medicine all here on Green Street to help you understand just a little more about what is happening in the world around you and how you and your family can live a better, safer, and healthier life in this crazy, often toxic world. Today on Green Street, we're gonna be talking about wireless radiation. That's the radiation that comes from your cell phone, your router, your baby monitor, that smart utility meter outside your door, that antenna outside your bedroom, your child's high-tech classroom filled with wireless devices, that cell tower down the street or around the block, all of that RF radiation and its cumulative impact on your health and the health of others, particularly those who may be physiologically more sensitive to that radiation than others. We are so lucky to have with us today two experts, a medical writer and an attorney, who have been working on the issue of electromagnetic sensitivity for several years. And in part one of our interview, which we'll play today, they're gonna to talk about what is EMS, what the symptoms are, and some of the causes of EMS. And then our conversation will continue with part two next week. But before we get to that, let's look at some of the headlines from the environmental news of this week. The first news item today is from Environmental Health News, where we get a lot of our articles that we read here on Green Street. It's ehn.org. This is uh, about PFAS chemicals, which you hear us talk about on this show almost every episode. It says, hard to escape in food, clothes, and makeup. Environmental Health News, in partnership with the website Momovation, spent the bulk of 2022 finding PFAS in scores of everyday products. Our findings suggest that these troublesome chemicals are on our shelves, in our bodies, and almost impossible to avoid. The collaboration between Environmental Health News and Momovation looked for fluorine, an indicator of PFAS, short for per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. We found contamination in clothing, food, and makeup products from popular brands like Lululemon, Old Navy, Burt's Bees, Whole Foods, and Trader Joe's. It's not entirely clear what this exposure, especially from clothing, means for our health, but experts say it contributes to the overall load of PFAS. Here are some highlights from the investigation. They found evidence of PFAS in 15 out of 23 popular sports bras and in 8 of 32 workout pants. They found PFAS in 54 out of 83 lipsticks, mascaras, and other beauty products tested. And they found evidence of PFAS in canola, cooking oils, and pasta sauces. Leah Segetti, who's the founder of Momovation, said, quote, Every single woman who is working out in the United States, 
I promise, if you ask her, do you want a chemical on your athletic wear that's linked to metabolism woes and weight gain and vaccine issues, she will say no. It's a very interesting article, and one of the things that they suggest is to put pressure on manufacturers by sharing this investigation and asking for evidence that products you are buying are PFAS-free. And you can also visit Momovation and go to product investigations for suggestions on food, clothing, and makeup that appear to be PFAS-free. That's Momovation, all one word, Momovation.org. My next article is about replacing toxic lead water pipes and the fact that some U.S. cities are refusing to replace the pipes unless the residents pay for it. This is from The Guardian. Elena Batista didn't pay much attention to the work crews that rolled down her street last year. They planned to remove water pipes made of lead, a toxin that can permanently damage children's brains. But they skipped the tenement building where Batista and her two kids lived. They dug up pipes only at the homes of those who paid or took out loans for thousands of dollars. Worse, the removal work risked causing a significant spike of toxic water for weeks, maybe months, in the homes of those unable to pay for it. Batista lives in Providence, Rhode Island, a city with a history of severe lead problems. Yet this practice is happening all over the U.S. Pipes made of lead, a material not safe in any amount, supply tap water to millions of homes such as Batista's. To completely halt contamination, there's no other option but to rip up the lead pipes out of the ground and change them for a different material. But, according to a Guardian investigation, some U.S. cities are now essentially telling residents, pay up for the replacement or get more poison in your water. America's massive lead problem came into focus in 2015 when thousands of mostly black residents in the city of Flint, Michigan were found to have been poisoned by lead in their drinking water. Since then, it's become clear that this problem is systemic and widespread and that many other Americans lack access to a fundamental right, water that is reliably safe and clean. President Joe Biden has promised to rid the nation's drinking water of lead contamination, yet a massive 2021 infrastructure spending package approved by Congress contained only enough federal funding to replace a third of the country's lead lines, leaving cities to figure out the rest for themselves. Studies have found that black and brown children are far more likely to have elevated levels of lead in their blood and to live in older homes with lead lines. Yet it tends to be wealthier white residents who take advantage of local programs that offer property owners loans to replace lead pipes. This is a long article from The Guardian and it ends up like this. Monica Huertes, a homeowner in this section of the neighborhood, already has one child of her four with high levels of lead in his blood and she worries about whether it will cause learning difficulties. The city suspects she has lead pipes. Yet she missed the meeting for this year's grant program, which she said was impossible for her to attend because it didn't offer child care. Now she said she isn't sure if the deadline has passed and she hasn't been able to follow up on it. We're just dealing with so many other things in our community, said Huertes, a social worker who runs a neighborhood environmental group. It's the water. It's the soil. It's the jobs. It's the color of your skin. Our community is overburdened and we're all overworked and underpaid. For now, Huertes says she buys bottled water and is teaching her children never to drink from the faucets. Water is supposed to be a human right, she said, but I'm getting this disgusting lead infested water. The last article I wanted to read is also from Environmental Health News. It's called, What is Environmental Health? 
a news article that was written pretty much just to describe what we do here on Green Street. Environmental health is a broad area of study. Everything from the climate to the food we eat to the air we breathe plays into environmental health. A few specific examples are air pollution. Living near factories or heavy traffic worsens air quality and leads to health impacts on the lungs and heart, such as asthma and increased risk of heart attacks or stroke. Water contamination. Drinking lead-contaminated water can cause IQ loss, behavioral issues, learning disabilities, and more. Infants and young children are most at risk. Toxic chemicals in consumer products. Phthalates, a class of chemicals that are widely used in consumer products, are known endocrine disruptors, meaning they hijack your body's hormones and can cause a wide array of health impacts, including increased risk of cancer and fertility issues. Many individuals may not associate their health problems with water or air quality, or with what clothes they wear, what makeup they use, what household goods they buy, or the food they eat. That's because not every example of environmental health problems are obvious. Some chemicals, for example, build up slowly over time in your body. A small dose may not seem to bring harm, but repeated small doses can lead to later impacts. BPA is a chemical absorbed through plastic containers, cans, receipts, etc. It lingers in the body and builds up over time to increase the risk of cancer, diabetes, liver failure, and more. PFAS, the chemicals we were speaking about before, are known as forever chemicals because they don't break down and are widely used, so small exposures are frequent and contribute to immune system and reproductive damage, heightened cholesterol levels, and more. Mercury from eating seafood and shellfish can impact neurological development of fetuses in the womb, and populations that regularly consume mercury-heavy seafood have shown mild cognitive impairment. Also, individual susceptibility can differ. For example, one member of a household can experience illness, asthma, migraines, etc. from chemicals found in the water supply, while another member of the same household is just fine. That's similar to what we're going to be talking about today when we talk about wireless radiation. Certain variables play a role in susceptibility and levels of adverse health effects, such as age, gender, pregnancy, and underlying health conditions. Studies suggest fetuses, infants, and children are much more at risk to experience lifelong health problems from toxic chemical exposures. Good environmental health equals good human health. This was an article from Environmental Health News, and those are the headlines from the Green Street News Department. We'll be right back. Even though studies have proven the negative effects of wireless radiation on lab animals, everything from documented increase in cancer to DNA breaks, oxidative stress, and numerous neurological and reproductive problems, government policymakers and regulators, under intense pressure by one of the most profitable industries on Earth, are pretending there's nothing wrong. Just think about the proliferation of wireless devices in our world today. Many people live tethered to their phones, literally unable to let go. Their homes are filled with wireless devices, all communicating through a wireless router. 
Their cars are filled with wireless technology. Their offices are completely wireless. And now their neighborhoods are increasingly filled with wireless antennas. All of these devices are emitting radio frequency radiation, or as the industry likes to call it, RF energy. Why do they call it energy instead of radiation? Because people are afraid of radiation, and for good reason. Radiation is dangerous. And as it turns out, it has a greater impact on some people than on others. In some ways, it's like a seafood allergy. Not everyone is allergic, but for those who are, it can be extremely uncomfortable, and when the source can't be eliminated, it becomes completely debilitating. Today on Green Street, Patty and I are happy to welcome two people who know a lot about human sensitivity to wireless radiation. Susan Foster is a medical writer, social worker, and EMS advocate who has chronicled the harm caused by cell towers, especially those on or adjacent to fire stations. She is an honorary firefighter with the San Diego Fire Department. Scott McCulloch is an attorney with a focus on public law and regulation relating to telecommunications, computers, internet, privacy, procurement, and electric and gas utilities. Scott successfully argued the case for Environmental Health Trust and Children's Health Defense against the FCC. Patty and I spoke with Susan and Scott the other day, and we started by asking Susan to define the term electromagnetic sensitivity. Here is part one of our interview with Susan Foster and Scott McCulloch. Well, it's a great question because it's uh, it's not exactly a diagnosis. What I call EMS or electromagnetic sensitivity, and I'm not the only one who calls it that, the U.S. Access Board in 2002 uh, decided that electromagnetic sensitivity was prevalent enough it should be considered a disability. The U.S. Access Board being a... Um... It, it is a, an independent federal agency that advises all of the agencies in the United States as to how they should accommodate people who are disabled. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so disability comes in many forms, and we think about it very often as mobility disability, but of course it includes intellectual and, and developmentally impaired and then you have the EMS, electromagnetically sensitive. Another way to say it is EHS or electrohypersensitive. So there are different names. And I tend to use EMS now because that is what the federal government uses. Mm-hmm. So I like to stay consistent with the U.S. Access Board. The problem is that the U.S. Access Board has not done anything about figuring out how people are going to become uh, accommodated in this increasingly ubiquitous wireless society of ours. So let's start with these symptoms. And I'm sure that some of your listeners, Doug and Patty, will be very familiar with these symptoms, but they may not know what the causal factors are. Mm -hmm. So when I say a constellation of neurological symptoms, it can be every one of the symptoms I'm going to list for you. It can be one or two. It can be one. But your exposure to your cell phone or to a nearby cell tower or to a Wi-Fi router in your home may be the cause. So neurological symptoms, the brain is the first organ after the skin to be affected by RF, EMF, radio frequency, electromagnetic fields. Okay, so the brain is the master organ. And when that is affected, you are going to feel it throughout your body, not just symptoms, but also functioning of your body. So it may be manifest in ways you recognize, such as sleep disturbances, headaches, and that can be a headache that 
feels like a tension headache all the way to a migraine. Fatigue bordering on exhaustion for no good reason. You wake up in the morning, you've had eight or nine hours of sleep, but you're still exhausted and you feel as if you haven't slept at all. And by the way, the sleep disturbances can be inability to go to sleep, inability to stay asleep, and then conversely, inability to wake up and, and function effectively. So lack of concentration is a big one. Cognitive impairment, lack of concentration. There can be emotional manifestations too, such as irritability, anxiety, depression, and sometimes there will be sudden outbursts of anger, even among people who typically do not have anger in their repertoire of emotions. Mm. If you're looking at children, I mean, adults can misbehave too, but children, sometimes when there is difficult behavior for no reason that you can identify you have to start thinking, did we allow our child to play with the cell phone? Did we add a router? Is the router near the child's bedroom? Did we have a wireless baby monitor in the child's room, which puts off a great deal of wireless radiation? Um, so really look for behavioral changes in a child if they've been fine. And all of a sudden you go into a high RF EMF environment and a coffee shop might be an example. A movie theater is another one. So if all of a sudden uh, a child starts to misbehave or an adult just falls asleep and can't wake up, that can be a symptom of exposure to RF EMF. Stress is another symptom. Feeling stressed, being stressed out for no particular reason. And that stress is often associated with uh, heart palpitations. Okay. So you can have mm -hmm. the, the heart is mm -hmm. an electrical organ. So it is very sensitive to RF EMF. So there can be cardiovascular complaints. There can be disruptions of hormones and metabolism, and then skin rashes. Those are all common symptoms of electromagnetic sensitivity or electrosensitivity. Can I just add one more thing? And I would love to have your perspective on that. And that is another exposure would be these uh, utility smart meters. And the reason that I mention it is because so many people all over the country are sitting, you know, in a home with maybe two or even three smart meters on their homes. And that in many cases seems to be the trigger for these symptoms. Could you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about these smart meters and how ubiquitous they are in this country? Patty, I think that's a great point. There are many people who, I think we're all familiar with the old analog meters that had dials that went around that looked like clocks, a series of mm, clocks. Yep. And, and smart meters came into being I, over a decade ago. It was actually a repackaging of a technology that existed. It was not intended to be wireless, but, but somebody had the brainstorm of of making it wireless, supposedly it's for energy sustainability. It, it's to become green by 2025 or 2030. And the problem is there's no proof that it actually works that way. Mm -hmm. And there's no proof that there is any energy savings whatsoever to the consumer or to the municipality. So I believe sometimes the municipalities may be acting in good faith when the utilities tell them we have to convert now, it's a bit of greenwashing going on. The utilities might say we have to convert to smart meters and understand that the utilities would not be doing this if they weren't making money from it. Wasn't there a government program that actually sponsored the deployment of smart meters through utilities? Scott, I'm going to defer to you on that because I don't know the answer to that question. 
Uh, first, I want to add a couple of symptoms. There, it's such a long list, it's easy for some mm. to drop off. Yeah. Ringing in the ears, skin rashes, tingling sensations, nosebleeds, dizziness, or even burning sensations. Yeah. Now, smart meters. Th these are, are, like Susan just said, these are touted as helping reduce overall energy consumption and demand on the electrical systems, but they truly have not been shown to do that. It's certainly been shown that if somebody wants to opt out, them being not on the program has absolutely no meaningful impact on any overall benefits to the extent they exist. Nonetheless, yes, the federal government and many state governments do have these financial programs, grants and otherwise. The federal government with some of its energy grants, there's help through the Department of Energy for utilities to tap into subsidies for smart meters. Uh, many folks may not really understand what a smart meter is. The, the old style ones with that dial that used to spin around and, and then the other little analog look clock looking dials, that's an electromechanical. As the energy goes through the meter, it spins a dial and they are able to measure the KWH, kilowatt hours that somebody consumes. Uh, what the smart meters do is they take real-time readings and they are digital. They have a lot of digital electronics in them and that requires an AC to DC conversion because the power that's coming in is alternating current, but all the electronics that run within it is direct current. So there has to be a converter. Uh, the converter is typically a switch mode type converter and that creates its own kind of electromechanical energy typically down in the lower frequency bands, but there's also some impact in higher bands as well. The main problem with these smart meters is many of them communicate back to the home network, back to the utility wirelessly. They operate on some of the middle band cellular frequencies. And so it's like a cell phone mm -hmm. yeah. outside your house. And, you know, that can create a problem. Um, they burst information, sometimes a thousand times a day. And one of the problems we're seeing in, in all the studies here, it, it's not necessarily the constant level exposure that you might get from a traditional, just standard carrier wave. It's the modulation that is used to make sure that the carrier wave can carry the information, whether it's a voice call or a data call. But even more importantly, it's something known as pulsation. Right. Uh, the energy output that comes from the transmitter will violently turn on and off or go way up and then go way down. And the body responds to this pulsation as much as it does anything else. It's like getting hit by a small wave, not a big problem. You get hit by a big wave, big problem. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Constantly barraged by a bunch of medium-sized waves, and then an occasional really big wave, it's going to affect your body, even more so than just regular exposure to ambient radiation. Mm. That, that is such a key point, is these pulsations, these frequent, and actually the utilities can decide how frequently they want this data transferred. Yes, they yes. can. And so yes. they can... So it's so it it could be, you know, many, many times a day, as you said, up to a thousand times a day, they're doing this with these pulses, these high pulses. And of course, this is more biologically harmful 
um, to the to the human body than just you know as you said this steady delivery of uh, of a certain level of RF radiation. Another another thing that's important for people to know, if you don't really care about that, the fact is that that now they can tell when you're using your stove, your washing machine, whatever it happens to be. And there is a plan, and in fact, it's already in place in some places where they are charging you more money for peak usage, peak mm-hmm. hours of the day, and a lower rate for the, uh, the off-peak hours. They can also tell what you're doing, where you are, how frequently you do things. It's a tremendous amount of data that they are able to collect from you personally and sell this information. Nothing mm. is more valuable than information about your personal habits. And so that's another piece of it. There is a great amount of private information. They can can draw very strong inferences, what kind of um, appliances you're using, uh, when you turn on and off your washing machine, a TV, a radio, a computer, how hard your air conditioner is working. And now they are also using it. And, and, you know, there's many areas where they're having some real problems meeting all of the demand on these systems. They can actually remotely turn off your electricity. They can actually (laughs) remotely control your HVAC. Right. So just to take a single example, if, you know, you're suffering some adverse health condition and you really need to have a temperature at a certain amount in your home, whether it be low or high, they may all of a sudden just adjust your thermostat and reduce the temperature or raise the temperature. That's correct. You know, that could be a health problem. And this goes back to them, the the greenwashing that they're doing, which is where, you know, we can turn things down if we can't rely on the public themselves to keep their their air conditioners at, you know, 71 or 72, and they have it at 68 or 65 even, we can make that go away, right? And so it's all kinds of things that that they're promising they can do with this ability to manipulate you know the power in your home if you're talking about the power companies then of course it's a gas company and it's a water companies too so you could have three pulsing meters on your home and that's just an individual you know when you have individual single family homes right it's another whole story and maybe you can talk about this a little bit um susan is that what happens when you're living in a multi-family dwelling where you have you know 28 apartments and you've got this bank of smart meters, you know, on uh, on the side of the of the building. Well, it's a very good question, and there are a number of complaints that we get from people who have become ill, of course, from smart meters on the side of their homes where they never had electrosensitivity or electromagnetic sensitivity before, mm-hmm. and suddenly they do. And so it's it's the sort of thing that when you're in an apartment building you cannot opt out even if you have the opt out in your area the ability to contact your utility and say for whatever reason you do not have to justify this with a doctor's letter it used to be that you did some utilities definitely try to make it difficult but people opt out and that means that they pay an initial fee and then they pay an additional fee that can range from $15 a month to $75 a month to, for one meter for the privilege of opting out of what has been imposed on you, which is really, in a sense, for those who are electromagnetically sensitive, it is an assault of wireless. Isn't that, just, I mean, it's a, Scott, is it, isn't there some legal thing here where people are being made to pay for something they didn't order that they don't want 
And all of a sudden they've got a $75 a month bill. Yeah, that has the potential to cause harm. Well, the problem here is that many of these smart meter programs arise because of orders of the State Public Utility Commission. You have Mm -hmm. these state PUCs out there, and they are the ones who develop the rules for these programs. And then once the utility commission develops the rules, each of these utilities will prescribe what is known as a tariff. That is the contract. It is a unilateral contract. It's non-negotiable. If you want electricity, you have to Mm. subscribe to and abide by this tariff or contract. And this is what sets out the terms and conditions upon which all of your electric service is provided, the pricing, but also the means by which your usage is metered. And so you will find in each utility tariff, these terms, you know, it may say, you're gonna have a smart meter and there's no opt out. Or it may say, you're gonna have a smart meter. If you want to opt out, then you have to do this and this and this. And there may be a fee. There's a fee for us to replace it with an electromechanical meter. There's a fee for us to come out and read it now that we have to come out and read it. And and so, yes, you are paying to avoid something that you didn't want to begin with. And that seems wrong. But since this is all under the control of a utility commission, uh, it's difficult to get around it because their defense is, I'm sorry, it's in my tariff in the commission. Well, it it sounds wrong because it is wrong, but it is wrong. I've been doing doing utility work, whether it be telecom or gas or electric for 40 years. And trust me, I I, I can look at a tariff and find 80 instances of wrong, probably in the first 15 pages. (laughs) That's just the way it works. Yeah. Yeah. The tragedy is that it's making so many people sick. And and because... Because the RF EMF runs along the wires into the home and it doesn't stay on the side of the house. That's the problem. So, yes. So you're talking That's about the one it. thing we've yet to mention about these smart meters. And, you know, we could talk for hours about these things. Right. Um, there, there's two other problems with, with the smart meters. One is they're not grounded. The old mm-hmm. electromechanical meters would have a really good grounding rod going way down into the ground. And, and that would shy away many of the uh, electro. Uh, magnetic pulses mm-hmm. that would normally uh, so be associated with with you know 60 hertz electric service yeah. instead of it going into the ground any pulses are going into the inside wiring and it's coming out each of your plugs and so you'll see an electromagnetic field around each one of your ac plugs in the house if you take a reading with one of these meters it'll show you it's admitting and so you'll have these fields inside the house and then they aggregate and they bounce around the walls and you'll find certain hotspots in your house that are just horrendous. Mm. In addition, there's this switch mode power supply problem that creates a current of its own, which is also propagated through the house. So not only are you suffering from the RF transmission when it speaks back to the board, but you're also being inundated with RF and EMF within your house just because of the way it operates. Right. And electrical engineers and so on call that dirty electricity. Um, So, you know what, I would like to just move on, Susan, and just mention the other problem, which is not quite as frequent as the problems that Scott has just mentioned here, but also that these smart meters may cause fires. 
Okay, there is definitely a fire concern with smart meters. We started looking at, at smart meters more carefully, the fires that can ensue because they don't have a fuse. The old, the analog meters had a fuse. So when there was a, what we typically call a surge, but it's known as a transient. So uh, let's say somebody, uh, it's a very poor driver. They hit a utility pole that has distribution lines and transmission lines above that. And this happened in Stockton, California in 2015. The transmission lines dropped on the transmission lines and sent a surge throughout almost all of Stockton. And there were multiple fires at the smart meter. Now, had there been analog meters, mm. the fuse would have blown and it would have stopped the flow of electricity, correct? That's mm. what a fuse does. But when you have, um, it's called a varistor in a smart meter, and it just, it holds back. It's the same as for a TV set. It can hold back 350 volts and that's it. So when uh, there's too much current going into a smart meter, it can uh, explode, it can melt. And the, the problem is that it takes about nine or 10 minutes for the wire to be burned all the way through. And while this is happening at the side of your house, electricity is continuing to surge through your home to your appliances and you can have internal appliance fires as a result. You've been listening to Green Street Radio and our guests today have been medical writer Susan Foster and attorney Scott McCulloch. That was part one of our interview with Susan and Scott, part two next week on the next edition of Green Street Radio. Thanks for listening.